Again, it's good to have my friend and brother, Pastor Marty Hoffman, with us this morning. What a pleasant surprise. I know we just sung that hymn, my funeral song, for all the saints who from their labors rest. The line in there say, oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. What a day that's going to be. Well, I thought about going back to a loving or unloving church one more time. But we've been away from 1 Timothy so long, we needed to get back. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. So out of respect for the word of God, would you please stand? 1 Timothy chapter 1. Read the first 11 verses. The word of God, let us hear it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, And Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to feebles, excuse me, to fables and endless genealogies, which ministers questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good, If a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Amen. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you again that from the dawning, from the dawning, Father, until the end of day, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
There is none like you in all of the earth, a just God and a Savior, declaring the end from the beginning and saying that your counsel will always stand and you will perform your good pleasure. Oh, Father, how we thank you this morning that we have the privilege of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, there is no other name. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And we thank you for a real Savior. God, our sins are so many, but his blood is all sufficient. We thank you for cleansing us afresh and purging us from our own unrighteousness and giving to us a righteousness that's not our own, but a righteousness that we can own. Thank you for that righteousness of Jesus Christ, that garment that we can stand in before you so that we would not stand naked in our shame. And now, O oh blessed Spirit, how we ask that you would teach us this morning because we need teaching, that you would come and grab a hold of us this morning, that you would indeed embrace us this morning. Above all, would you point our eyes heavenward so that we may see Jesus. Show him to us, oh, our gracious God. Please show him to us this morning. Lord Jesus, pour in your love to us this morning so that we would know you as the great God in human flesh. And now build us up. Make us what you would have us to be so that we would do what you would have us to do. Hear our prayer. Hear our cry now. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Paul's encounter with the king of glory had turned his life upside down and inside out. He went from being an enemy or crisis enemy to being his emissary, one who was sent on a special mission. He's gone from being an opponent of Christ to an apostle of Christ. His heart beats for the glory of Christ and for the health of his church. Can I just say that one more time? Paul's heart beats for the glory of Christ and for the health of his church. Nothing Nothing thrills the saint's heart more than to know and to see those who profess to belong to Christ living for Christ. Nothing thrills the heart more than to see those who own the name of Christ living for Christ. <sighs> Nothing thrills the Lord Jesus Christ more than to see those who are called by his name living in a way that doesn't dishonor his name. In other words, their desire is to please him because they love him. Is that your desire this morning? So Paul, as a lover of Jesus and his church, writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, 
by identifying himself as the apostle or mouthpiece for Jesus with all the authority of heaven backing him, he reminds Timothy as well as those inside of the Ephesians church or the church at Ephesus that what he says must be, must be heeded, must be. If you or they are not willing to listen, you are not willing to learn. Paul encouraged Timothy to stand up, to stand tall, and to stand his ground. Heaven is behind you, Timothy. As we saw before, Timothy may have been discouraged. Timothy may have been ready to pack his bag. Ministerial pressure is real. Timothy may have thought, I am done with this. I am finished. I'm turning in my resignation. Paul's letter came at the right time. Please don't miss the fact that Paul is instructing Timothy to teach the leadership how to lead. Oh, I want to just stop right here for a moment. It will entail, it will entail how they, how they lead in their personal lives. And I've lived long enough, and probably some of you have as well, some folks enjoying telling other people what to do without doing it themselves. No, it will entail how you lead in your personal life. Remember, you cannot lead where you don't go, and you cannot teach what you don't know. It will also entail how they lead in their family life, not only in their personal life, spending time in the Word of God, spending time in prayer and applying the Word of God. It also will show or entail how they lead in their family life. If a leader can't lead in his family, he can't lead in the church. Family life. I'm amazed in our day of folks who call themselves Christians, husbands who don't even take their wives by the hand and pray with them. Family life. The fragrance of the home should be a gospel fragrance. Husbands, wives praying for one another. We are so messed up in our days. The husband goes to church over here. The wife goes to church over here. That sounds like a divided family to me. Children have options now. You can go if you want to go. Options for children. Oh, if you don't want to go to work, <laughs> time for you to establish your own home. You don't have to say anything. (laughs) Sometimes we don't want to do that, right? Because our children have become idols. 
They just lie on the sofa until we get back. Who's running the home in that situation? You tell me. Our society is filled with child-ran homes. Did you know that? Just saw, <laughs> probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> I just saw, yes, it, I think it was yesterday, I was sitting in the library trying to study away, and a little boy came through and said, <clears throat> His mama said, let's go. He said, now! Now! In the library! Now! She said, don't you want to go home for the... No! He was about to talk. Well, I'm going to get you something. No, I don't want to go! And he was loud. He stopped pitching a fit, and she was just walking away, and, and others were smiling like this right here. And listen, that's not cute. Some people think, oh, look at him. That's so cute. That's not cute. He had the right parent. <laughs> I've been going to jail. No, don't. Hey, don't record that. <laughs> In the middle, everybody looking around, and mama just said, come on. Oh, we're going to play at now. This went on for about five or ten minutes. Way too long. Guess what? They left out of the building, and behold, they came back. Guess who won? The child. He came back smiling, too. He didn't come back like this. Child ran home, y'all. Even adult children, listen, if they're in your house, that's still your house. If they can't listen to the rules in the house, guess what? It's time for them to establish their own place of business. I don't like your rules. Well, let me get your bag. I'll help you pack. We love you. You don't have to go. But if you can't abide here, you have to go. And I'll help you. Pack, that is. A divided home. My brothers and sisters won't stand. Those are the type of places Satan looks for. The pit, husband against wife, or parents against children. Maybe that never happened in your home. Something seemed to just be going wonderful, and all of a sudden an explosion happened, and you're trying to figure out what happened. Not only in personal life, but in family life as well. He must lead. Lead in prayer. Take the family to the throne of grace. Praying for children, old or young. Praying for his spouse. They need to know the voice. They need to know the voice in the home. Not just when we eat, Father, thank you for the food. Amen. (laughs) More than that. Some don't even, sadly, read the scriptures with their family. Reading the word of God with their family. 
You know what Jeremiah prayed? God send down your wrath upon those families that don't call upon your name. Don't even read the scriptures with their family. And they set up in churches like this. Amen. Amen. See, this is all the Christian life, if you will, they get. They don't do anything at home except sit in front of the TV all day. That's not leadership material. So not only in the personal life and family, how the leaders lead in the community. I hope you see the connection. Personal, family, community. What comes next? Church. How they lead in the church. If a person, a man, if you will, if a man doesn't know how to lead in his family, if he doesn't know how to do that, He has no business in any leadership in the church whatsoever. No business. He doesn't know how to do it. So what was happening in the body at Ephesus was people were wanting the benefits of Christianity but did not want the life of Christianity. I want to go to heaven. Why? Why? Because I don't want to go to hell? That's the wrong reason. Are you listening? I want to go to heaven. No one wants to go to hell. Did you know that? No one. It's an awful place. Human words can't even describe it. And sometimes people make fun of hell. There's nothing funny about it. God is not laughing one bit. Folks want to go to heaven. But they want to live like hell. In the life of Christianity, that's what's going on in Ephesus. Not what everyone, it is the cry of Balaam when he said, let me die the death of the righteous. But he didn't live the life of the righteous. I have yet to attain a funeral. You may have. Where the person did not go to heaven. Every single funeral I've been to. Christian or not. Everyone. Heaven. If you don't know if they walk with Christ, don't preach them in it. Don't preach them in heaven. I know we want to comfort families, but don't preach them in a place you don't know if that's where they went. Situations like that, I don't even say very little about the person who's dead and talk to the people who are alive. (sighs) Folks want to go to heaven without living a heavenly life right now. We have a high calling. We have a high calling, my brothers and sisters. Stick with me, I'm still in my introduction. We have a high calling, but we want to live as though we had a low one. We can't do that. We can't do that. 
We have so much in Christ to live as though we had nothing whatsoever. It's an abomination in the sight of God. We have so much in Jesus. We are united to the, we are united to the king of glory. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, we have everything we need to walk with God. We lack nothing. You lack nothing. If you're in Christ, you have everything. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, His people. What else do you need? What else do you need? You lack nothing. Nothing. As Timothy instructs the leadership, poor leadership, listen carefully, poor leadership is detrimental to a church. It's really detrimental to any organization. Any church that has an incompetent leadership either has an incompetent followership or war between the two. I'll say that one more time for you. Any church that has an incompetent leadership, in other words, leadership that just doesn't know how to lead, either has an incompetent followership, those who following the leadership, or war between the two. So Timothy, in this church in Ephesus, will need all of the encouragement he can get, and Paul is going to give him every bit of it. See, Timothy is facing a dilemma. He has a case on his hand. He's facing J and J. I believe he's facing J and J. You may say, what do you mean by J and J? I mean Jezebel's and Judas's. You see, you have Jezebel's who gather a group to try to take over because she wants her own way. And not God's way. And you have Judases who say that they are with you, but they are not. They are crooks. They are undercovered demons. But let me just remind you God got rid of both Jezebel and Judas. So as the church at Ephesus is having all kinds of issues, we saw that in the overview of the letter. I want us to ask and answer the question, are we contributing to the spiritual health of the church or are we contributing to the spiritual sickness of the church? That's the question each one of us have to answer. Are we contributing? What is our part in the building up or the tearing down? In the health or in the sickness? Are you, and this applies to me as well, are you praying that the people gathering in this place will be built up in Christ or do you want to see them torn down? You have to answer that question. pressing it a little further. Did you come here? Did I come here to this morning to hear the word of God? Do we actually come to hear the word of God? Let's go a little further. Did we actually gather this morning to live the word of God? So just a quick review. 
We have defined the church as the body of believers living under the headship of Jesus Christ with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. A body of believers, a gathered body of believers under the headship, authority of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. With the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It is a community where love is expressed from the family to the father, from the saved to the savior, from the saint to the spirit. It is where a mutual love for one another must burn, must burn. The saints delight in one another because they delight in the savior who delights in them. The church van is the gift from the Father to the Son, hand-delivered by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it belongs to Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. The church is not the church without him. Since it is Jesus' church, he has the right to determine how it functions. Are you still with me? He has the right to determine how it functions. We don't determine that. Jesus does. Because the church belongs to him. And he has determined how it functions right from this book. For a church to function in any other way than Jesus intended, listen carefully, for a church... A church, remember, local churches are an expression of the universal, the one universal church. You can't be in every church at one time. You can't see all the saints until glory. Some have already had worship service before us. Some will have worship service after us throughout the whole day. There's nothing but a whole worship to the living God. For a church then to function in any other way than what Jesus or how Jesus intended is an insult to God the Father who gave the church as a gift to his son. It is an insult to God the Son who purchased the church with his own blood. And it is an insult to the Holy Spirit who is grieved and quenched. If the church functions any other way than how Jesus intended. So we saw where Paul writes with divine authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. His writing was stamped with the approval, the complete backing of heaven. In other words, it was approved by God. Paul started off by expressing that God the Father was our Savior and Jesus Christ was our hope. In doing so, he removes the false idea that Caesar is the Savior of the world and Artemis is the Ephesians' hope. We talk about Artemis, that false deity, that false goddess. It's fiction. When you think about Jesus as your only hope, that'll fill you with a song to sing. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> when you think about Jesus as your hope, it's like what I said on Wednesday. And people get excited. They get excited sometimes. I don't understand it. They get excited talking about their past, what were they delivered from. But when they start talking about Jesus, they go, and then Jesus saved me. 
don't understand it. It seems like the excitement tears off or fetters and it falls off. Excited about the past, but not excited about what Jesus has done. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. So Paul, Paul started off by expressing that God the Father was our Savior, as I said. Jesus is our hope. So when you think about Jesus, I hope you sing. When you think about Jesus as our only hope, our place of refuge, our only confidence, our high tower, our buckler and shield, our all in all, I hope you can shout with a hallelujah and say glory to the Lamb. Because of the idolatrous practices in the city of Ephesus, false teaching about myths and genealogy were being perpetrated on the church. There were those who were moving the minds of some in the congregation from that which is real to that which is fiction. Some things have not changed. We can die or delve, if you will, right into that. Some of the things we're hearing today, some of the things you get, is nothing but fiction. Fiction. Foolishness. Nonsense. In every congregation, either truth will prevail or fiction. In every congregation. Fiction doesn't build up the church at all. A pursuit of godliness is what does that. So we ought to pray for one another. We ought to practice hospitality, meaning you ought to be having folks in your home. The Word of God commands that. We ought to share with one another. This will aid in us encouraging one another, building one another up as we get more intimate with one another. That's what it does. It's designed to do that. Furthermore, Timothy was to shut the mouth or shut down the false teachers, and he was to do this boldly. It will take some boldness. Bad doctrine is destructive to the church. Bad practice is a bad testimony of the church. Are you listening? You can have what I call good, quote, doctrine and have bad practice. Can that be? Can somebody really have that? Israel did. They had good doctrine and bad practice. That brings us to our message in this morning. We must take the Bible, my brothers and sisters, as our final authority. It all boils down to either this, if we don't do that, we either don't know our Bibles, or we don't believe our Bibles, or we don't want our Bibles, or a combination of those things. So it brings us to our message today, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, coming from verse 5. First thought, love as the grand goal. Love as the grand goal. Verse 5 says, now the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart and of good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So what is this thing called love? We have defined love several times this way as the willing, deliberate, sacrificial giving of oneself at one's own cost 
for the highest possible good of the person in view, though the person may be unworthy of it. I'll say it again. The willing, deliberate, sacrificial giving of oneself at one's own cost for the highest possible good of the person in view, though the person may be unworthy of it. In other words, love requires a willingness. Love is action, as we said a couple of weeks ago. Love is action. It has legs to it. It has hands to it. It acts. And love always has an object. You just don't love nothing. You love something or someone. It always has an object. It's a magnet going to that object, whatever it is. It requires willingness, meaning you have an eagerness, an earnestness, and a readiness to do what you can for the well-being of your brothers and sisters. Eager, earnest, willing, readiness. You fight through all of the reluctance in this matter of love. But my question is, why would Paul mention love here, though? Why would he do that? It's my question that I ask. Why mention love? Why, Paul? I believe it is because he knows that this is the one attribute, the one virtue that will set the tone and permeate the atmosphere of the church with fellowship and submission to the Word of God. This is the attribute. If we are not submitted to the Word of God, we are not going to love God's way. Bottom line. If we are not submitted to the Word of God, what we are going, what are we going to fellowship around? What, what will we fellowship around? It will be nothing to fellowship around. If we are not submitted to the Word of God, then the household of God will be out of order. And that's the problem going on in Ephesus. Timothy, we have to get things in order. When the Word of God is not the authoritative instruction guide for the church, then something else has or will take its place. That something is usually man's opinion or his feelings. One out of two. If we don't have the Word of God, we have to go by something. You have to go by something, and that something would either be man's opinion or how everyone feels. Feeling, <laughs> feelings, yes, I'm going to say it. Feelings is not the place to rely or to bank on, by the way. You know and I know your feelings change all the time. That's not a resting place, but people govern their lives by their feelings all the time, and they make bad decisions. 
We call those emotional decisions. God has given us feelings, but you can't run life by your feelings. You can't live life by your feelings. All Paul is doing in this passage is calling Timothy to instruct the leadership primarily and the congregation secondarily and doing church life together according to the mind of God. That's what it has to be. So it's out of love. Timothy, here is the grand gold. Here is the end in end in it all. Here is our grand design. Here is what we grabbing after, Timothy. And the end of it is all out of love. It must be. It must be out of love. That's the grand goal. That's the aim. That's love. Second, love from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. When he said, now the end of the commandment is this. Oh, before I go there, let me say this. What does Paul mean by commandment? What does he mean by commandment? It could be that Paul is referring back to verse 1 when he said, I've given this apostleship by the command, God, our Savior, I'm the apostle of Jesus Christ. It could mean that. But I don't think that's what he's referring to. I think what Paul is referring to is what he told Timothy. Timothy, I charge you. I command you that you charge or command some that they teach no other doctrine. And this, Timothy, is all out of love. But I'm always could be, I always could be corrected. That's the goal, Timothy. It's all out of love. So love from a pure heart. What is the heart? Sometimes in the scriptures, the heart refers to that organ that pumps blood through our circulatory system. We have an example of this when Jehu took his bow and shot an arrow through the heart of King Jehoram of Israel. He's talking about the physical heart. 2 Kings 9.24 Other times, the heart refers to the place from which our understanding, affection, and will work together. Physical heart, that place, that seat from which our understanding and affections and will work together, it consists of all three. We take in information. We process that information. That information affects us to one degree or another, and we respond to what we've taken in. We all do this. Comes to the mind. We process it. It affects us in one way or another, and then we act. That's what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can't eat of that tree. God's keeping something back from you. It came to her mind when she understood that it would be good for food. She processed it. It affected her, and she acted. That's what she did. So Paul, <clears throat> however, in the text before us, I give you the two, the physical. 
in the text before us, Paul is not talking about the organ that pumps blood throughout the body. When he refers to the heart here, he is talking about, listen carefully, who and what we are before God. Pure heart. Who and what we are before God. Stay with me. Please notice, I did not say who and what we are before other people. I said who and what we are before God. Not what we portray or paint ourselves to be. Stay with me. Stay with me. It's us before God, or it is we before God. Before God, the secret is, there is no secret. Before God, he sees us for what we really are, not for what we pretend to be. Are you, maybe you're not listening to me. I'm talking to me. You just get to hear it. God sees you. God sees me for what I really am and what you really are, not what you try to be. Or not what you pretend to be. I hope you're not pretending. I, I was reading a week before last in a children's book, and it said something interesting. In it, Brother Marty. <laughs> it said, I cover what is real and I hide what is true. What am I? I cover what is real and I hide what is true. What am I? Can you guess? <laughs> the answer was a mask. Stay with me. <laughs> The answer was a mask. That's what pretension is. That's what hypocrisy is. It's to wear a mask, to hide what is real, and to cover what is true. But it doesn't work before God. God sees through the mask. He sees through all of that stuff. Pretension and hypocrisy will wear thin one day. It's like that old man, I've told you a couple of times, that old man, Mr. Marlowe, used to say, he said, you can only pretend for so long. The word pure can mean clean. Not only the heart is that which contains the understanding and affection and will, who and what we are, our being. The word pure can mean clean, ceremonially or morally. It is what David cried when he committed adultery against Bathsheba and had Uriah killed in Psalm 51. He said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, Psalm 51.10. What is scary? I got ahead of myself. So the heart, again, 
not only the understanding and affections and will, but it has to do, listen, with the motives. Oh, have to do with the motives. What, let me tell you something that's scary. It is when the actions are right, but the motives are wrong. Oh, you didn't hear me. You didn't hear a word I said. I said, what is scary is when the actions look right, but the motives are all wrong. We have an example of this with Jehu. After he destroyed the worship of Baal out of Israel, the word of God said, listen, he destroyed the worship of Baal false worship in Israel. He went about, he said, come and see my zeal for the Lord. The word of God says this about Jehu, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. Stay with me. To walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of, all of his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, who made Israel the sin. What did Jeroboam do? He made some golden calves, and that was Israel worship. Yeah, he destroyed the worship of Baal, but he didn't destroy those golden calves. A zeal for the Lord, no heart. Right action, wrong motives. You can do the right thing. I can do the right thing. For the wrong reason. <laughs> My children don't do this, but they might. <laughs> you want me to wash the vehicle for your dad? <laughs> sure, I just, I just clean it up for you. Okay, what you want? <laughs> we can do the right thing. For the wrong reason, my friend, and that's scary. (sighs) Here we go. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Lying at the heart of what you do is your heart and what you do. Maybe I can say that a different way. The heart in the matter is your heart in the matter. The psalmist asked the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Listen, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Motives must be right. Psalm 68, 18, if I desire iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Motives. That's what God is reading. God is reading human hearts, not only human actions, but human hearts. He that has a pure heart, clean hands and a pure heart, who have not lifted up his soul under vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Do you hear the motives? The motives have to be right. Pure heart. We may not even finish. The pure heart, the pure heart, 
is also one that has been washed by the blood of Jesus. Are you still with me? The pure heart is also one that has been washed by the blood of Jesus. You and I are so filthy that ivory soap can't clean us. You and I are so filthy. That safeguard can't do it. Dove can't do it. Dial can't do it. Coast can't do it. Leave 2000 can't do it. You need something else. You need some gospel soap. I'm talking about the blood of Jesus. It will take nothing less than the blood of God's own son to cleanse us from our filthiness. This is why the hymn writer asked that all-important question. What can wash away our sins? And the answer came back, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The other hymn writer asked the question, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Sadly, some people like some in Ephesus are okay with not doing what God said. Are you and I one of those people? You're okay. You're okay with not doing what God said. You're okay with that. That's a bad place to be. It's the pure in heart. It's what Jesus himself has said. The blessing, the happiness, the joy, the privilege that come. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's what Paul encouraged Timothy in. He said, fully youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord. Listen, out of a pure heart. It's a pure heart. Cleansed by the blood of Jesus, motives are right before God. Well, next, love from a good conscience. Not only love from a pure heart, but love from a good conscience. What is conscience? What is conscience? I define it this way. The conscience may be defined as God's moral monitor of judging what is right and what is wrong. The conscience, everyone has one. Every human being has a conscience. It's God's moral monitor to judge what is right and what is wrong. The conscience has about six words in its vocabulary. It may be more than that, but I give six. Yes, no, good, bad, right, wrong. Your conscience, mine, Depending on how we have informed that conscience, I'll say that a little bit in a minute, but i just say it right now. Our conscience has to be informed and even cultivated by the Word of God so that we can see things in its real color, what's right and what's wrong. If it's not informed by the Word of God, here's what we will do at times. We will call that which is right, wrong, and what is wrong, right. We do it all over in our society. It's when the conscience is defiled. When the conscience has become defiled, we confuse what is right and what is wrong. Paul says here, not only a pure heart, but you've got to have a good conscience. You know why? Because there's such thing as a bad conscience. 
Conscience, as I said, has very few words. In order for conscience to function as it is intended, it must be instructed by the word of God. Conscience either approves or condemns what we do. Knowing that conscience starts saying this, that's wrong. You're wrong. Guess what we do? You're wrong. Be quiet. You're wrong. And when conscience gets loud, we do whatever we can to cover it up so we can't hear it. And all of a sudden, we just do what we want to do. God has given that moral monitor. It flashes like a light before us. And then it's like a red light saying, stop. But we don't stop. We just press the gas. It's designed, listen, it's designed to turn us around. It's like that little GPS, what, Siri or Alexa or whatever we have. And you make sure turn, it's saying 500 feet, make a U-turn if possible. And then you keep going and say, and 300 feet, make a U-turn if possible. And then it goes a little further, and 100 feet, make a U-turn if possible. And when you pass that 100 feet, it gets real bold. It says, make a U-turn now. And that's how the conscience functions. Make a U-turn now. But guess what? Just like the GPS, we ignore it. I know where I'm going. Why you turn on the GPS in the first place? <laughs> oh, man, come on. So we, we won't listen, but God has given us this conscience, this monitor for our own good to say, no, no, yes, yes. I gave it to us. Don't do this. You know you, you, know you are wrong. Anybody, you don't have to put your hand up. You have been wrong and you know you are wrong. And you try to fight that thing. I'll get personal. I'll get a little person if you don't mind. It was about, I don't know, 16 years ago or something. I remember that far. Yes, yeah, my memory worked a little bit. And I said something to my wife. I don't think she would be embarrassed. I said something to her. And I couldn't sleep. I was walking up and down in the house. My wife sleeping like a baby. I'm walking up and down in the house. And all I kept coming, all kept coming to my mind, you were wrong. You were wrong. You were wrong. And I was trying everything I could think of to say I was right. So 2.30 in the morning, my wife's sleeping. I hadn't even been to bed because I'm walking up and down in the house wrestling. You're wrong. No way. But she said this. She said that. Yeah, I should have said that. I should have said that. I should have said that. No, you're wrong. Oh, no. So I finally woke my wife up. You know when you wake them up. And then I finally woke my wife up out of sleep. I said, sweetheart, I need to talk to you. She said, what's going on? I said, I said some stuff and I was wrong. She said, watch this. She said, no, there was nothing wrong with what you said. I said, you don't know the reason why I said it. Are you still with me? I said, my motive's behind it. She didn't know the motives. 
I said, my motives weren't right, and I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? She woke up, and she said, yes. Then I went to sleep. But before then, I couldn't. That's why I asked the question. You're hearing wrong spirit convicting. If you are a believer, you are wrong. But God has given you that moral monitor to say this is not right. And you know it. But we'll do everything. Pull out the shotgun. Poof. To try to put it to sleep. But I can assure you, your conscience will be with you, small voice or loud, all of your days. All of your days. It could be defiled. (laughs) It could be pressed down. But the conscience will be with every person all of their days. Sometimes the conscience condemns us, as I said. The scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. You remember the account, John chapter 8? Caught in adultery. Jesus said unto them, after they said, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, that was bold. We caught her in the act. Interestingly, it's just the woman. What happened to the man? Let me move on. That's just rule number one in interpretation. What does the word of God say? (laughs) Caught in the very act. Jesus said something interesting. They said, according to the law, she ought to be stoned. Jesus said, let him that it was out sin cast the first stone. He put it right back in their court. She ought to be stoned. He said, okay. Whoever without sin among you, you go ahead and cast the stone. Interestingly, no one took up a break. Because the word of God says this, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest or oldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the women standing in the midst. The only one who was without sin was Jesus. You see how they were condemned by their own conscience. That moral monitor. Sometimes the conscience can become so seared because of sin that it's callous. We become callous. We become so hard. You become so hard. I don't care about anything. That's a bad place to be. That's a bad, that's a dangerous place to be. I'm concerned about nothing and no one. Callous, cold, hard. Person becomes hard as a stone. It's I don't care attitude. This was not the attitude of the Apostle Paul when he said, and herein do I exercise myself to have always, listen, a conscience void of offense toward God. But he didn't stop there. And toward men. He said both. Mine is both vertical as well as horizontal. Paul understood that what he did mattered. What he did mattered. Fourth, love from a sincere faith. Not only from a pure conscience or pure heart and good conscience, 
but also from sincere faith. What is this sincere faith? It is trust without hypocrisy. That's the simplest way I could put it. It is trust without hypocrisy. Why is he telling Timothy these things? You know why? Because those who are teaching and leading the people astray don't have a good conscience. They don't have a pure heart. And guess what? They don't have sincere faith. It is that trust without hypocrisy. In other words, it does not pretend. It doesn't just talk Christianity. It lives it. It lives it. Teachers had spread bad teaching, myths, foolishness, fictions, endless genealogy. They're talking about things they don't even understand and have led some away. He names two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, in verse 20 of the same chapter. They're shipwrecking the faith of other people in Paul saying, Timothy, we have to have a good conscience. We have to do things from a pure heart. We have to have sincere faith all issuing out of love. Sincere faith does what is right because it is right. Sincere faith does what is right because it is right. That's how we must function. We do what's right because it's right. And it's always right to do what's right. I remember... Goodness, this has been a long time. This is about 20, almost 20 years. I read an account, I think I listened to it, of a dad in Texas, I believe he lived. And his son worked for the company. They had their own business. <clears throat> and as they worked, his son would leave during lunch break. And he would leave every workday, seemed like during lunch break. And little did his dad know that his son was going and buy ga- buying gasoline until he looked at the receipt and seen his son buying gasoline. But what his son did is he drove from Texas to California. And he would drive to California, and he would light houses on fire and drive back to Texas. And so the police was just, investigators were just shocked. One boy burning down a convalescent home with old folks in it that died. They, were, they could not find this arsonist anywhere. And he would just do it on his break and come back. And his dad didn't suspect anything, didn't think anything of it. And then finally a description came up. And dad started looking at all the receipts, all the gas receipts. And he started putting things together. He said, wait a minute. I think this is my son. I think this is my son. So he called the police up. You didn't hear what I just said. He called the police up. And he said, I think the person you're looking for is my son. And authorities came. And it indeed was his son who was going into California and lighting places on fire. They did a documentary of it. And lighting these places on fire. Man lost his business. Folks wouldn't shop at the place anymore. Man, this thing made headline news everywhere. And you know what a dad said? He said this right here. You have to do right no matter what. You have to do right no matter what, even if it's your own child. They gave his son 25 years. 
Dad testified. Now you tell me if that's hard. You have to do right no matter what. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you have to do right. Don't bail now. Stay and hold your ground, Timothy. Why are these things important? Timothy has to shut the mouths of these teachers because they have no encouragement, only entertainment. We do what's right because it is right. Man, time's gone. My friends, let me ask you a question. What keeps you, if you are outside of Christ, what keeps you from Jesus? What keeps you from doing what Jesus has said? If this world is what you want, guess what? This world is what you have. But let me remind you of something. This world will never give you what you need. It will only give you what you want. If it's not Jesus. But I also remind you, this word needs the same, this world needs the same thing that you need. Jesus. Remember, there are only two kinds of people in the world: those who need Jesus and those who need Jesus. Are you hearing the word so that you can grow in Christ? We have this stagnation going on in the church in Ephesus. Are you hearing the word right here? Let's move on to Ephesus, St. Pete. Are you hearing the word so that you can grow in Christ? Are you reading the word so that you can grow in Christ? That's your desire. That's your longing. If you read to grow, you'll always have something to say. i never forget when my friend Sherman Craft said to me, he was going to glory, I told him one day, I think I've told you this, I told him one day, I said, Brother Kraft, it's been fine talking to you. I got to go in and I got to work on the sermon. I have to prepare the sermon. I got to study to do that. He said, Clarence, you don't study to prepare sermons. You study to grow. And if you study to grow, you'll always have something to preach. I said, that's one of the best counsels I've ever had. And he's right. One of the best rebukes I've ever had. See, I think the thing with some of us, we're not reading to grow. We find ourselves in this little rut. We're kind of like the hamster on the wheel running but going nowhere. You know, my grandma used to have these little 45 records. I know some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you do. Little 45 records with these al- and, and the album as well. But sometimes the record would just play the same line over and over again. It's over and over again, over and over again. My grandma would say, boy, go in there and put a needle on the, go in there and put a nickel on the needle. I said, do what? She said, go in there and take a nickel and set it on the needle. The, the record had a handle, record had a handle on it with a little needle on it that played that, that disc. And she said, go and put a nickel on the needle. And I would go and gently drop an itch, drop a nickel on the needle of the record. Then it will start functioning as it intended. We used to call a record a scratch, is what you used to say. The record a scratch, put a nickel on it. Children, you hadn't seen record, I think, some of you. You, 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 knew, you know CD, 
you know CD, you know CDs and stuff like that. We talking about this. We talk about something like a frisbee. You know. We went back a little bit on you. So, so that's what she would do. She would tell me to put a nickel on that needle so that it would do what it was intended to do. I think some of us are comfortable with a scratch record life. I think we're just comfortable letting it play in the same spot over and over again, over and over again. My friend, God did not intend for us to live a scratch record life. God wants the nickel of grace on the needle so that we can live what he intended for us to be. Oh, go to the Savior. Go to the Savior. If you want Christ this morning, you can have him as we said many times. There is room at the cross for you. Many have come. Why not you? Many have butched their tent at Calvary. Why not you? Many have had their burdens to fall off. And when they gaze up at Jesus, why not you? You come to Christ as you are. But I guarantee you won't stay the same way. You come to Christ in all of your messiness, and he is able to turn your messiness into a message. You come to Christ where you sit so that on the day of judgment, you will be able to stand clothed in his righteousness. You come to him and tell him that your life is full of holes, and he will give you the spirit so that you could be holy. Oh, child of God, you have everything in Jesus You have everything in Jesus. Cultivate your conscience and form your conscience so that you can make good judgment. Oh, seek to do things from a pure heart, from a pure heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, pray until you pray. You didn't miss what I said. Pray until you pray. You ever prayed and said, huh, I need to repent of the prayer. I just, you messed with that. Christ has lived for you. Christ has been beaten for you. Christ has died for you. Christ has ascended into heaven for you. Christ even now prays for you. And right now, his wounds speak in the presence of the Father for you. What does he say? Here are my hands. They were nailed for him. Here are my feet. They were nailed for him. Here is my side. It was pierced for him. I have purchased him with my own blood. He is mine. Five bleeding wounds he bare, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayer. They strongly plead for me, says Wesley. Forgive him, oh, forgive their cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive their cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive their cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. Right now, his wounds speak for us. He is not going to leave you now. He will not leave you ever. So, my brothers and sisters, let us, with a good conscience, pure heart, Sincere faith, without hypocrisy, trusting in a living Savior with all of our being until he comes or takes us home. Let us pray. 
Our Father, we thank you again for our time together. Thank you for the blessing of just having your word. And now as we have the supper, Lord, we thank you for the mercy seat. Oh, how we thank you for the mercy seat. May the mercy seat prepare us for the judgment seat. God, hear our prayer. Bless us and encourage us and fill us with joy. Hear us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We get ready for the Lord's Supper.